Hello, welcome to this session of All About Women with Ayan Hersey Ali. My name is Sarah McDonald. Uh, Ayan is going to speak for about half an hour and then we'll have time for you to ask questions and when that moment comes, I'll tell you where the microphones are. Ayan Hersey Ali was born in Somalia, but she grew up in Kenya and Saudi Arabia and she sought asylum in Holland after running away from a forced marriage. While raised a Muslim, she became an atheist after September the 11th and as a Dutch member of parliament began to speak out against her former faith, especially in regards to its treatment of women. She now lives in the US and she's been hailed a revolutionary, a hero of our times, an emblem of hope, an undaunted spirit. But she's also been called a heretic and an infidel. In her latest book, Nomad, she issues a call to arm to Western women to help their Muslim sisters in a new form of feminism. I'm sure we're all interested to hear what that is. And may I introduce to you now, Ayan Hirsi Ali. <laughs> what an incredible thrill it is for me to be in Hello, welcome to this session of All About Women with Ayan Hersey Ali. My name is Sarah McDonald. Uh, Ayan is going to speak for about half an hour and then we'll have time for you to ask questions and when that moment comes, I'll tell you where the microphones are. Ayan Hirsi Ali was born in Somalia, but she grew up in Kenya and Saudi Arabia and she sought asylum in Holland after running away from a forced marriage. While raised a Muslim, she became an atheist after September the 11th and as a Dutch member of parliament began to speak out against her former faith especially in regards to its treatment of women. She now lives in the US and she's been hailed a revolutionary, a hero of our times, an emblem of hope, an undaunted spirit. But she's also been called a heretic and an infidel. In her latest book, Nomad, she issues a call to arm to Western women to help their Muslim sisters in a new form of feminism. I'm sure we're all interested to hear what that is. And may I introduce to you now, Ayan Hirsi Ali. What an incredible thrill it is for me to be in Sydney again and at the Sydney Opera House. Thank you so much for your very warm welcome. I'd like to thank, of course, Sarah McDonald for her kind words. I'm growing old, so I'm going to put on my glasses. <laughs> and I'd like to thank um, Anne Moss of All and Alexandra Hurst and all the other good people at the Sydney Opera House for making my stay here fantastic and comfortable. Each time I come to Australia, I'm struck by the warmth and the kindness and the beauty of this place and the understated sense of humor. <laughs> the no dramas mentality. If I wasn't already a citizen of a country, I might have to apply for one here. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, 
It's 13 years into the 21st century, and women have so much to celebrate, in the West, that is. Let's celebrate that in Australia, in America, in Europe, and the rest of the West, women are free and equal before the law. Let us celebrate that the birth of a girl is welcomed with as much ceremony as the birth of a boy. It wasn't always like that. It's not like that in some of, some, most parts of the world, in fact. The education of a girl is obligatory in the West and it's protected by law as much as that of a boy. That's worth celebrating. Institutions of higher education today court young women as much as they court young men. We take these things for granted, but they were not always there, and they are not there in most of the world. Almost all schools in the West offer some form of sex education to the youth. Teenagers are told that sex can be fun and exciting, but there can be unintended consequences that could affect you for the rest of your life and it's left up to the individual teenager to make his or her own choice. In human history, that's new. It is not the case in most of the world. That is worth celebrating. Civil organizations such as Planned Parenthood in the US, and I'm sure here in Australia, educate women on their reproductive rights. There are numerous law firms that offer legal aid to vulnerable women. There are elaborate networks of shelters in the West that serve victims of domestic violence. There are public and private efforts to protect girls and women who get into trouble. The institution of marriage has evolved in the West a woman may initiate divorce and get it. The marriage contract is to be honored, and she has legal protection in the division of material and custody over existing children. In fact, in matters of custody, a mother in the West, in practice, enjoys sometimes more rights to the children than does a father. All of this is new, and all of this is worth celebrating. In all Western governments, when two people, one a man and the other a woman, apply for the same senior position, and if those two people have equal qualifications, governments in the West, as a matter of policy, will favor the woman over the man. This is affirmative action, and it is an attempt to correct the gender asymmetry reflected in the labor market. That's a new development. Many private companies have adopted this policy, at least on paper. Many more offer daycare and flexible hours to encourage women to find some form of balance 
between being a mother and pursuing a career. All of this is fantastic. Women are encouraged to start their own businesses and by law may keep the proceedings of their enterprise. Women here in the West inherit wealth, they may live of that wealth and will it to whoever they want. Women in the West have the right to vote, they have the right to run for office, they have the right to associate, to organize, to demonstrate, to petition the government on issues that they care about as much as men do. There are women lawyers, women judges, women prime ministers, and women chancellors. That is relatively new, and all of that is worth celebrating. In all of these areas, there is so much to celebrate because so much has been achieved. It is perhaps more important to note that none of these milestones was achieved without a great deal of struggle. And it is a struggle that continues. Every single achievement I have mentioned, and more that I have not mentioned, had its campaigners and supporters on the grounds of freedom and equality. But each single cause in the process of women's emancipation in the West also had its opponents on grounds of religion, tradition, reputation, the stability of the family, the nation, the church, or just for the sake of keeping peace. Yet, those who opposed a free and equal life for women were and are defeated in the West. They have been proven to be wrong on moral grounds and on logical grounds. Many of them are disgraced, and some of them are somewhere licking their eccentric wounds. A free, educated woman in charge of her reproductive rights, her earnings, and her destiny is a better student, she's a better citizen, a better mother, a better wife, teacher, nurse, doctor, girlfriend, She's a more productive employer, and in general, a more fulfilled person than a woman whose intellect is inhibited by denying her education to realize her full potential. A woman who is denied her sexuality, a woman who is denied the right to work and keep her pay, is a woman who is bitter and lives in resentment. Society, in general, is more potent, stronger, more resilient, and more peaceful when the rights and freedoms of women are granted and protected than when they are compromised. So many explanations 
have been offered for the advance of Western civilization, and they are all partly true. But perhaps the most powerful explanation is the unleashing of the potential of all its citizens. So far, I painted a rosy picture of perfection. But when you call for celebrations, you focus on milestones. You put up lights and balloons, and you drink to highlights. But things are far from perfect for women, even here in the advanced West. For one, violence against women, regardless of the numerous legislation and educational attempts to eliminate it, is still rife. The recent example in this country of the rape and murder of Jill Meager, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, in Melbourne, is an illustration that a woman out for a drink at night is still not safe. And even worse, violence against women, and for that matter children, and some men, is still most prevalent at home. In the US where I live now, 1,200 women and 500 men die at the hands of a spouse or partner. You may say, well, on 350 million people, that's a small number. But every life counts. Every year, 200,000 women and 40,000 men in the US seek emergency room help due to domestic violence. In the US, 2-3% of marriages endure ongoing physical violence. The figures that I have found for Europe are that 12-15% of women have been in a relationship of domestic violence after the age of 16. There's some under-reporting, so those figures are not complete. But the point is, it is not a bed of roses for women, even in the West. There's a lot of good stuff to celebrate, but there's also a lot of work to be done, and the struggle continues to eliminate violence against women, particularly in the home. But ladies and gentlemen, there is another relatively new challenge to the milestones achieved by the women's movement here. Immigration from cultures that have not wholly accepted that women are and should be free and equal before the law as men challenge this culture of freedom and equality. This flow of people from cultures still inherently hostile to women, combined with the prevalent attitude of multiculturalism in the West today, presents a fresh challenge to the completion of the process of women's liberation, if it will ever be complete. And in many ways, this combination of assertive misogyny promoted by some immigrant communities on the one hand, plus the attitude of moral relativism in the West on the other hand, are a setback that could derail the women's project of liberation. Certainly, not all immigrant individuals are hostile to women. 
thousands, if not millions of people from countries with limited or no political and economic freedom come to the West in search of a better life. Once they establish themselves, these individuals adapt and not only take advantage of the political and economic opportunities here, but they also learn about, they respect, and they apply within their families the rights and freedoms of girls and women. And that fact is also worth celebrating. But this point should not obscure the other darker fact that there are an increasing number of immigrants who come to the West, who acquaint themselves with the culture of gender equality, who are appalled by it, and who strive to reverse it. These individuals start their campaign against women in their own homes, so that their first victims are their own daughters, sisters, cousins, wives, and other relatives. This rejection of women as free and equal beings is rooted in centuries of custom, as it was the practice 50 or so years ago in some Western countries, and maybe 100 years or so ago in other countries. Its practice here in the West was justified in the name of God, and today, those immigrants who want to compromise the rights and freedoms of women justify the oppression of women in the name of freedom of religion and the equality of cultures. It is interesting that they invoke freedom to take away the freedom of others. In the West, such violence and intolerance to women if it occurs in the home, is shelved under the category of domestic violence. But it is a special sort of domestic violence. Let me give you an example. If a white, Christian, or secular wife is beaten by her husband, and if the act becomes public, she knows that her husband is morally wrong. He, the perpetrator, also knows that. The law and the church and all institutions take the side of the victim. The perpetrator is prodded to apologize and mend his ways or otherwise threatened with jail if not convicted. The victim, if she has friends and family, is supported through the whole thing. Now compare this to the Muslim woman, whose cultural roots lie in Pakistan or the Middle East, who suffers a beating from her husband. The husband invokes the Holy Quran. He lists his wife's wrongdoings. He has not only the support of his family and friends, but he also has on his side her family and her friends. She must have somehow provoked the beating, and he will stop beating her if she stops provoking him. This is only one example of violence against women justified in the name of culture and religion.
the cutting of the genitals of girls is explained as inevitable because it's tradition. Veiling, house arrest, and other means to limit the freedom of movement of women and girls is justified in the name of God, prophet, the holy book, and custom. The indoctrination of virginity into the minds of young girls, notes, not boys, is done in the name of honor and faith. Girls who have sex before they are married are either resourceful enough to fake virginity on the wedding bed of a man they did not choose to marry, or they are busted and subjected to various forms of honor violence, including honor killings. By the way, it is not only some of the Muslim immigrants who are opposed to the idea of free and equal women. Some immigrants from India, China, Orthodox Jews, some members of the Russian and Greek Orthodox churches, some Latin Americans in the name of Orthodox Catholicism, attempt to limit the rights and freedoms of women in liberal societies in ways they would not dream limiting those of men. In the West, the patriarchy of immigrants from cultures that have not caught on the freedom and equality ideal for women is not subjected to the same critical scrutiny as is the patriarchy of the white man. Now, why? There are different reasons, but the most salient is multiculturalism. If, to some of you, multiculturalism means that people of different ethnic, religious, and cultural backgrounds can live together in a liberal society where they all uphold the rule of law, then that's one thing. No rational person is opposed to that arrangement. Human diversity can sometimes be enlightening, enthralling, and otherwise enjoyable. But multiculturalism in liberal societies has morphed into something else altogether. As a harmonious model of live and let live, where every community asserts only those aspects of their identity, such as food, fashion, and spirituality that are compatible with the norms, values, and rule of law that exists in liberal societies, is only in theory. You'll find that in textbooks of academic institutions that are out of touch. You find it in the editorial rooms of leading newspapers, radio and television channels that are even more out of touch. And in the narrow minds of politicians who court immigrant self-appointed leaders so that they can mobilize the vote of those communities who are least likely to educate themselves on the political choices of the day. Multiculturalism is no longer a model of racial, religious, and cultural harmony, if it ever was that. Multiculturalism is indifference disguised as tolerance. It allows the free and affluent person 
to turn his back on those whose freedoms and rights are compromised, on the poor and the most vulnerable. It gives people an excuse to claim tolerance in the face of intolerance. Multiculturalism is moral racism disguised as broad-mindedness. The left-leaning white man and woman holds himself on our herself and other white people to the highest of moral standards, but employs five or more syllable words and lengthy sentences to justify why the Indonesian, the Iranian, the Nigerian, the Arab, the Aborigine, the African-American, the Native American must be excused for observing peculiar customs. Multiculturalism is apartheid, disguised as pluralism. Immigrant minorities are told that they can benefit from the opportunities and services provided by the liberal nation-state, but at the same time, they can remain loyal to the societies that they emigrated from, and in many cases, the societies that they fled. They can remain loyal to their forefathers' religion and so on. But when the locals complain about this rights-only and no-obligations deal, the multiculturalist condemns them as racists, provincials, intolerant, and you name it. Meanwhile, social cohesion is the casualty, and society fragments, and dangerously so. Look at Europe. But worst of all, as Susan Muller Ockin wrote more than a decade ago, multiculturalism is bad for women, and the most vulnerable women at that. Western feminists, as a result of multiculturalism, have neglected systematically and failed miserably to include immigrant women in the Emancipation Project in any meaningful way. There are exceptions, but that is the sad truth. Is it Western feminists who should be taking on immigrant misogynists? You bet. Feminists, Western and non-Western, need to be dexterous in taking apart the logic of multiculturalism. Feminists must unite to question Islam and the religions of other immigrants into the West the way Western feminists questioned and continue to question Christianity and Judaism. Feminists must unite to initiate interest and cultivate advocates within and among immigrant communities. When the woman prime minister of Australia calls the man opposition leader a misogynist, I see that as pure political entertainment. I was a politician, that's the kind of thing we do. And why is it entertaining? Because Tony Abbott is white and Christian. And given that he is in a leadership position, 
he is, of course, subjected to microscopic media scrutiny. If he were a misogynist, the press would have a filled day with it, and so would you. There is real misogyny in Australia as in other Western countries. Some Asian couples, for instance, prefer to have boys instead of girls. So in pregnancy, at week 16 or 20, when they're able to find out the gender of the fetus, they abort the female and keep the male. This trend is not only causing problems in parts of India and China, but it has been noted among Asian communities in the US and Britain. Wouldn't it be great if the woman prime minister and the male opposition leader were to look into this in Australia? Of course, I hope that Asians in Australia are more enlightened than those in the US and the UK, but if there are couples who practice gendercide right here and in a perfectly legal way, what would government and opposition do about it? An honor killing is homicide. So if the murderer is caught in the West, he faces the full force of the law. But everywhere we see that an elaborate network of family members and relatives are involved in the singling out, capturing, and eventually assigning or enabling the murderer to take the victim's life. After the event, there is a celebration of some sort, always solemn and always shrouded in prayer. If I were an Australian feminist, I would ask the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition to look into this sort of thing and take a position on it. As I would forced marriages, the removal of girls from school and deportation to the country of origin of the parents, I would ask their opinion about developing a detection method for girls at risk of female genital mutilation in Australia. The Prime Minister is right. There is real and cruel misogyny in the world today and in Australia, but it's not perpetrated by the likes of Tony Abbott. But perhaps he and she could address the real problem. I want to conclude that as a woman living in the West, I have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to celebrate. But also, we have so much work to do. And as the world gets smaller and more connected, the narrative of freedom is rubbing off on people of different cultures and religions, however remote. We see that in the Middle East today. But it's not only the narrative of freedom that is finding fans. Various narratives hostile to women are also gaining ground. Ladies and gentlemen, but especially ladies, we better push back now while we can. Thank you very much.